So let's complicate things even further and move to the third characteristic or third definition of spin the cultures of control and the strong centralization of political communication. I suppose an example of this is when individual ministers have to clear their political communications through a central communication office. Yes, and this way of organizing communication aims at avoiding that conflicting views are expressed in public by different members of the government. Would I be right in thinking that this third definition, this organisational interpretation of spin, is often also related to a professionalisation of political communication? By professionalisation, I mean that governments hire communication professionals rather than party members or party loyalists for this job. Communication professionals have often worked in the news media or in public relations or marketing. Yeah, that's right. But it isn't only the governments that use spin in this sense. During the Iraq war, it probably wasn't even primarily the governments, but the US military that organised communication most meticulously along these lines. They centralised communication in the coalition media centre in Doha, and they embedded journalists in the military, which gave a journalist access to first-hand information of the war, but also required of them to be very careful what information they would send out, and that information was heavily screened. When I got there, I began to try to create processes that would make it possible for us to bring together uh, intelligence information uh, that would let us declassify imagery in some cases, to have good awareness of what was happening operationally, building a process that made that possible on a recurring basis uh, to actually stand up and speak about the operation. This huge frustration on the part of the media uh, with the way that the, uh, the Americans have been handling their media operations. Uh, essentially, uh, it's been a disaster, uh, apart from some set-piece events uh, at the end of the day. Um, the Americans are simply not giving out any information at all, and it is left to the British uh, to enlighten us during the day as to what's going on, and they're doing their best, but it is causing... Uh, a great frustration, particularly among my American colleagues, who wonder, frankly, what on earth they're doing here. Well, why has that happened? I think it's, uh, it's all about control freaks in Washington, to be honest. Uh, I don't think they want people here stealing, stealing the limelight and the message from Donald Rumsfeld and General Myers at the Pentagon. Uh, clearly, that is the set piece of the day as far as the, uh, the, the Americans are concerned. It was bringing the operation into the public view and indeed also engaging in operations to a degree, like uh, the fact that we would have to work against our adversary in the eyes of the public. And so I, I viewed it as an operational opportunity. The embeds, as they're known, the journalists traveling with the military units are the absolute heart of this media campaign. And this perhaps is the other reason that explains why not much is being said here. And it is an extraordinary business. I mean, it, absolutely unprecedented in, in, in some cases. For example, uh, the American networks who've all managed to figure out how to broadcast live on the move inside Iraq a lot as they accompany the American forces. It's mesmerizing to watch on our TV screens. Uh, and it is bringing us a kind of flavor of life uh, at the front, if you like. Very small, narrow snapshots. They don't tell us a great deal about the bigger strategic picture, but they are 
riveting to listen to. Uh, but when it comes to the issue of embedding, that's a much more serious issue uh, because that's taking you to the real difficulty of modern war reporting or the reporting of modern wars, which is that it's not possible any longer to stand on a piece of high ground and watch what's happening. All of this is coming through screens, often many thousands of miles away from the actual conflict, and it's uh, more difficult than it ever was for journalists to know what's really happening. It's interesting to see that both contemporary politics and military action seem to respond to an assumption that one needs to control information and does one's relation with journalists very carefully if one is to survive both politically and militarily. I find this comparison interesting for another reason. For me, this desire to control information borders on censorship. It explicitly reduces the freedom of journalists to report different views of a conflict. This strategy went hand in hand with warning about the dangers of roaming about freely, that is, outside of the embedded system, to gather information on the war. It thus reduces the possibility to test the official stories. And remember also that Iraq has been one of the most deadly conflicts for journalists who did not work in an embedded system. Yeah, at this point, we should maybe be careful with this analogy. Centralizing political communication and institutionalizing a culture of control in politics does not mean that the members of government do not have different positions and opinions on a policy. Neither does it mean that civil society does not have access to the media. And finally, not all political journalists are equally politically embedded in the political machinery. So there is argumentation informed by evidence, values, personalities, and what the culture of control and the centralization of communication does is to try to keep some of the political battles that take place within a cabinet away from the public eye. They try to prevent that these differences emerge in the public domain. And the assumption underlying this is that if one comes out as a bickering government, or if one appears as a party that seems not to be able to agree on anything, this is politically suicidal. Yes, but you can't deny that it does limit considerably the information that enters the public realm and thus could enrich the debate in a more substantive way. Is democracy not ultimately about trying to put arguments for a policy in the public realm so that they can be contested? Trying to limit this contestation may well be an objective of governments, but it doesn't mean that we should endorse it. But I'd like to make another point as well. I think it's interesting that you try to separate these three characteristics of political communication that are related to spin. For me, they hang together rather closely. They're part of the same reality, which is a strategy of political communication that at least facilitates, if not encourages, deliberate and dishonest manipulation of evidence in support of a policy. There's good ground for spin having a negative meaning. And if governments are spinning information, there are good grounds for asking oneself if one should trust this government or that military institution for the information they provide. In other words, the concept of spin is indeed a political weapon to discredit one's opponents, but it's not without testable grounds. One can check if a government, a politician or a spokesperson is heavily centralising political communication, emphasising soundbites and heavily embroidering communication. 
If that's the case, I do indeed think this is negative and there's some ground for undermining the political credibility of that government. I'm not sure I fully agree with that conclusion. I accept that the three characteristics may be linked more closely than I would like to believe. But the reason why I would like to separate, especially the first meaning, which in my opinion carries a negative connotation of spin most heavily, from the other two, is that connecting them closely as you do risks discrediting the political importance of style and soundbites and of centralizing and controlling political communication. Both one's political survival as a leader and as a party and the survival of one's policy seems to depend today quite heavily on being able to come up with the right soundbite and to make sure that arguments within the government are not presented in public. I'm not so sure about this. I think there's a serious problem with the political culture of control and emphasizing form or style of communication over substance. If the packaging and the marketing of the message starts to dominate over the content of the argument, doesn't this imply that politicians aren't taking citizens seriously? And when political communication of arguments and evidence is extremely controlled so as to reduce counter-arguments based on similar or conflicting evidence, doesn't that imply that they consider citizens to be passive consumers of information? who can easily be seduced into believing anything. So on this basis, why should I then in return trust politicians and the information they provide? And it follows, why should I trust that politicians act in the best interests of society? Don't they, first of all, act in their own interests? Maybe I can introduce another reason why I would like to draw a distinction between spin as lying and spin as styling and controlling. I think the latter two characteristics, or the latter two definitions, refer to something that's going to stay with us in politics for the near future. We might prefer it differently, but political parties and leaders will seek to centralise communication and will have to carefully work on style, presentation and soundbites, possibly to the disadvantage of substantive arguments. And if that's the case, I think one should refrain from tainting this development as inherently negative, because... When you do not carefully distinguish between dishonest manipulation and the other two aspects that spin seems to refer to, you're not simply discrediting a particular government or political leader, but political communication as such. If you would be a politician, you might find it extremely difficult, if not impossible, to survive politically without institutionalizing a culture of control and without giving priority to presentation and soundbites in the way you present your policies. If I'm correct, that that is the case, then by trying to discredit political leaders, parties, governments for using a communication strategy that centralizes communications and focuses on form, you're discrediting politics as such. That's why I think using spin as a political weapon is self-defeating, if you believe that politics is important for policymaking. It will fire back upon you once you're in power, and even probably when you're trying to win the elections. This argument relies on one important assumption which you haven't explained. Why do you think centralisation and soundbites are going to characterise political communication in the future? Political communicator Lorraine Davidson 
makes an interesting point here. But I think that spin is something that you require in modern politics. It's with us now. It's never going to go away. I think that uh, a government has every right to try and get across a positive message and to use spin to do that. That's not lying. It's using helpful journalists, helpful newspapers. It's using whatever vehicle you feel is going to be most friendly to you to get your message across in the best possible light and then to build on that and to freeze out people who are not helpful to you. So I think that spin is with us. I think Alistair has been very clever in saying I'm stepping back into the shadows uh, from a perception point of view and to make it harder for the Tories to attack him. Uh, I think actually he's going to be working even harder behind the scenes and ensuring that we see not less spin but far more, only you just don't know where it's coming from. And I tend to agree with her. I also think spin or at least centralisation and sound bites are to a considerable extent a response to structural long-term developments in both the news media and politics in Western democracies. But just because spin is inevitable doesn't make it acceptable, does it? No, and it's worth bearing that in mind. But let's look for a moment more closely at the developments in the media and in the political field that help to account for the rise of spin and for what's happening with political communication at the moment. And so I'd like to start from the news media and developments in relation to the news media. Political communicators who wish to get media time have to respond to the media's understanding of what makes a good story, of what's newsworthy. And this can imply tough negotiations and bargaining about the time, the format, the language and the content of the message. And they also have to understand how the media operates. For example, if the BBC has a central newsroom where the first selection of newsworthy material is done, which is then distributed to the different outlets, radio channels, TV channels, etc., it's important that one gets one's message through this first hurdle and that one presents it in a way that allows the core message to be broadcasted on the different channels with their different styles. Political spin in that sense can be seen as an attempt to influence these negotiations and hiring communication professionals can be seen as a response to the need to understand a varied and complex media landscape. But that's not really something new, is it? How can it then justify the rise of spin and cultures of control? No, it's not something new. But the pressure upon both political communicators and the news media has been changed by what some observers refer to as the marketization of the news media. So what does this term mean, this marketization of news media? Marketization implies a number of interrelated developments. The first is that the competition between the media has intensified considerably. There's competition for advertisement, for readers and viewers, for spectacular news stories. There are many more media players around. And the media will try to play on personalities and frame stories in rather spectacular ways so as to capture attention. Listen, for example, to how Radio 1 started increasing the tension and reproduced the build-up to a war after the French veto. For days now, Tony Blair's been on a desperate mission to get UN backing for war against Iraq, but now it looks like he's accepted it's not likely to happen. The PM says he has still got some hope left, but Britain and America look like they're going to war alone, and it could be just days away. This style of presentation suggests that the war could happen any time now. Now, this captures attention, and it thereby also reproduces the assumption that the French have brought the war nearer. The media landscape has also changed considerably in another way. For example, there are 24-hour news channels, there is the internet, 
And they all mean that politicians have to be increasingly aware that their statements can be used across a variety of media, which they have increasingly difficulty to get a grip on or to control to some extent. And finally, there is a third change as well, which is the speed with which news is broadcasted and the vast array of communication channels that are available. They put a lot of demand upon political communicators if they wish to control or at least to be aware of what's happening to their political communication. I'm not sure I fully buy this view, Jeff. Spin doctors themselves often come from the media or marketing field and thus import some of the requirements into the political field. In doing so, they may be reinforcing the tendency to package political news in dramatic, personalised and simple stories. And so we end up here in a vicious circle. You also mentioned that changes in the political field are important. The most prominent of the changes in the political field that are relevant for spin is political dealignment. It's a difficult concept, but it refers to a decline in party loyalty of citizens. Parties can no longer count on a big cohort of loyal voters who always vote for the party on ideological grounds or because they were socialised into party loyalty through local networks and organisations. Are you suggesting that in a situation in which the allegiance of citizens tends increasingly to fluctuate between parties, depending on an evaluation of achievements, mood of the moment or general image of a party and its leader, that in that situation spin becomes almost inevitable? Yes, or at least spin in the sense of increasing control over information and valuing the style of the message as much as the content. When the electorate is increasingly volatile, politicians will have to sell themselves and their policy more continuously and intensely than before. And as a result, the news media becomes increasingly important for reaching out to voters and to social movements. 